from the enterprise team at Zoho, this is Business Unusual, the show about companies and their leaders who have achieved success by doing things their way. I'm Arun Srinivasan. And I'm Austin Reese. As your host, we'll be taking you through stories you've never heard, or stories you thought you knew, of entrepreneurs and business leaders who succeeded on their own terms, outside conventional business wisdom. Welcome to another episode of Business Unusual. As usual, I am Arun Srinivasan, joined by Austin Reese. And, you know, in the last two episodes of this season, we've kind of gone international. We covered Wolfgang Puck, who's from Austria, and we covered Ingvar Kamprad, who's from Sweden. But today we're going to bring it back to the good old USA and actually back to where we spent all of our time in season two. Austin, Texas, a place that Austin Reese, my co-host, knows very well because he lives there. So today, we're going to talk about somebody who is the world's youngest female self-made billionaire. And the app that she works on, that she's built, is actually quite relevant today. And we all almost certainly know somebody who has used it, is using it, or we have maybe even used it ourselves. And this app is called Bumble. Uh, Austin, have you heard of Bumble? I have heard of Bumble. Um, I knew it was an Austin, but I didn't know much about the company. So I'm excited to hear uh, the story of, of the founder. And um, it's always cool to hear stories of places in Austin. And it sounds like, you know, we have Kendra Scott and now we have the, the Bumble founder. So we're, we're flush with female billionaires in, in our city. Right, right. And... So for those of you who don't know, so the founder of Bumble is Whitney Wolf Hurd, and she is the founder and CEO of Bumble, which is a social and dating app that was launched in 2014. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Bumble, it is a dating app that is a mobile app on your phone where you kind of swipe left and you swipe right as you see different people's profiles. And if you swipe right, that means you like this person. If they happen to swipe right uh, on your profile, then you guys are matched and you can engage in a conversation. So um, when my you know wife and I met, it was 2012. So really, we missed this in, like kind of whole era of the dating app craze. And it's uh, I got to be honest, sometimes I'm, I'm most of the time I'm very thankful because it does seem crazy talking to your friends about it and all the different apps and all the different uh, dates and whether they're good or bad. And yeah, so I don't really remember what sets Bumble apart which I'm sure you're going to get into, but I know there's like some other ones too. Exactly. And Whitney Wolf Heard herself was an early executive at Tinder and, and Tinder started just a couple of years before Bumble. And this was, as you mentioned, right in that time when this online dating really went from something that was, I think, kind of looked at as uh, not taboo, but maybe not mainstream. And it really became mainstream with the advent of Tinder and then Bumble and then several other apps that have sprouted since then. One of my favorite courses in college was um, interpersonal communication. And the professor was kind of a legend on campus, but he made a comment one day, and I still remember it, that right now when, when I was in that class, he said dating and the online dating looks is looked at as weird, but in the future, it's going to be weird to not meet your partner online. And I just remember at the time thinking that that was kind of crazy, but we're definitely in that era. Uh, certainly. I mean, I think nearly 100% of my single friends are on, on in some way or another engaged in online dating uh, as well as, you know, likely 
organic sort of in-person meeting of people as well. But it's now, I think, in the single scene considered a a critical element of meeting somebody. Yeah, I would agree. And certainly there are many opinions about, you know, whether people would prefer to meet people online or offline. But uh, that doesn't uh, hinder from the popularity of these apps. And Whitney Wolf Heard is really one of the the early drivers of this. And today we're going to get into the story of how Bumble came to be and how it's become, you know, essentially the, the number one or co-number one dating app in the world right now. In 2017 and 2018, Whitney was on Forbes top 30 under 30 list. And in 2018, she was also named in the time 100 list. So these are lists that are just acknowledging successful entrepreneurs, especially those under 30. And Whitney really at a young age has become quite the entrepreneurial phenom. She became the youngest woman to take a company public at age 31. And as I mentioned, in 2021, Heard became the world's youngest female self-made billionaire. So she's doing all right. Yeah, I, it's very impressive. Again, I'm, I'm struck with the feeling of inadequacy anytime I hear numbers like this and, and ages like 31. But I had to just remind myself that I'm special my own way, you know? <laughs> you may not be a billionaire, Austin, but you're the host of, <laughs> of an amazing podcast. It's so true. Yeah, thank you for that. So uh, I want to dive into a little bit of history before we get into some of the specific strategies and approaches that Whitney has taken to growing Bumble into the the company that it is today. So Whitney Wolford was born in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1989. She attended Southern Methodist University where she majored in international studies and was a member of the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. Now, while in college at the age of 20, she started a business selling bamboo tote bags to benefit areas affected by the BP oil spill. And she partnered with celebrity stylist Patrick Oftenkamp to launch this nonprofit organization called the Help Us Project. And this was really geared, this was a project geared around these bags. And through this connection, you know, the bags received national press after celebrities like Rachel Zoe and Nicole Richie were photographed with them. Soon thereafter, she introduced a second business with Oftencamp called Tender Heart, which was a clothing company or a clothing line dedicated to raising awareness around human trafficking and fair trade. So we see this over and over again with entrepreneurs that most of these entrepreneurs start their own projects, whether or not they're the projects that they continue on into adulthood, but they start these projects when they're very young. You know, this season alone, we saw that with Ingvar Komprad going door to door selling pencils and pens and knickknacks. And then with Wolfgang Puck really looking at starting his own restaurant in his, I think it was his early 20s, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. An- another similarity I- I'm hearing right now is between Whitney and another um, episode we've done was, like I mentioned earlier, is Kendra Scott. You know, not only an Austinite, uh, not only um, a billionaire, but also very into philanthropy. It sounds like from an early age. Um, yep. The, the two the two businesses you just mentioned, you know, have that philanthropic angle to it. So it's it's great to hear, and it sounds like along with being a great business person, um, she's a great person person. Yeah, exactly. And after college at age twenty two, she joined the development team for the dating app Tinder. Now. For people who are familiar with the dating app space, Tinder was one of the very, very early mobile dating apps that extended beyond the sort of ones that we had kind of known about online, like Match.com and eHarmony and Plenty of Fish. Tinder was one of the first that took this concept of 
seeing a profile and swiping left or right. And so at age 22, she joined a, a very early Tinder and eventually became the vice president of marketing for Tinder. In 2014, she actually ended up resigning from Tinder after growing tensions with other executives and actually ended up filing a sexual harassment lawsuit against the company. And if you're interested, you can kind of look up the the whole details. It's not a very pleasant research topic and something to discuss because, uh, you know, it is, it is uh, a little bit disturbing to read through the text messages and everything that they have published about that. But nonetheless, she left the company in 2014 with a bad taste of the experience in her mouth. And so taking this experience, however, she decided to kind of parlay it into something else. And she started a company called Merci, which was a female-only social network centered around compliments, kindness, and good behavior. So she really went the, she took the experience that she had and just went completely the opposite. Yeah, that's really interesting to, to hear. And I think with a lot of apps, it's really cool to hear about early versions that they eventually make. So I'm thinking about Kevin Systrom with um, making bourbon before Instagram along with his partner. And now I'm hearing about um, Merci. Is that what it was called? Merci. Yeah. yeah. Hearing about Merci, which was, you know, a, uh, the forerunner to, to, to Bumble and just how, you know, how different they were, you know, the similarities. Um, and I really like the, the kindness and, and compliment um, angle to it. Yeah, exactly. It's just something very refreshing about it. Although, on its surface, it also sounds like something that would be difficult to turn into a business. Yeah. And I'd, I'd also say, I, I'm not sure uh, kindness and compliments are two things I would normally put with uh, social media, but that's, that's <laughs> you know, neither here nor there. Right, right. Exactly. And so somebody else who agreed that this may not be a business opportunity yet was her friend, Andre Andreev. And he was the founder of, or he is the founder of a popular dating app in Europe called Badu he was really insisting that Whitney needs to turn this into a dating app. But really, Whitney did not want to go back into the dating industry. She was really resistant to it. But after a few months, she decided to cooperate with Andreev on assembling a team and developing a new sort of female-friendly dating app. Now, she originally wanted to call it Moxie, but the name was taken. So in December of 2014, just eight months after leaving Tinder, she founded Bumble in Austin, Texas. Wow, just eight months. That's um, that's really fast. I, you know, a lot of times you leave a company, um, especially you know one that sounds like she put a lot of her heart and, and a lot of hard work into, and then also to have your heart broken by that company through um, you know some really awful things that that took place. That it would make sense to to take time off and to really re regroup, but that was not the case for her. Exactly, and and I'm and we'll get into actually one of the ways in with in which she was able to move into founding a new company so soon, and really, it's by partnering with Badu with Andre Andreev and his company Badu, because she was able to leverage an already created back end of that app and merge it with her ideas and her design and her brand, which was a reason that she was able to have such a quick turnaround after leaving Tinder. I'm curious if you know like how how they knew each other. Uh, like her international studies background, perhaps maybe she did some traveling. Uh. Yeah, I would guess that that partnership was rooted in the commonality of each having a leading sort of dating app in their respective parts of the world, and there was probably a connection made there during her time when she was at Tinder. But I can't say for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. As of 2020, Bumble has over 100 million subscribers worldwide. 
And in February 2021, Bumble topped $13 billion in valuation after listing shares on the NASDAQ. In 2021, as I mentioned, Herd Wolf became the world's youngest self-made female billionaire after taking Bumble public. And Forbes estimates her net worth at about $1.5 billion. So she's doing all right for herself. So, you know, we've, we've heard the kind of the story of where Bumble came from and how she's built it over the years, but I really want to go into the specifics of how she was able to build such a big company by doing things differently and leveraging, not only leveraging her knowledge of what, you know, everything that she did with Tinder and the resources that she had at Badu, but by doing something that is in one sense, female empowering. And the first thing that she did was she immediately bucked gender stereotypes. So on Bumble, women start the conversation first. And this was the first and at the time only app to force the conversation to flow in this manner. Now, Bumble has grown into the company is today because it was founded on a basic principle of taking a stance on a contested issue, which was that women were never supposed to make the first move. So how did this happen? One night over cocktails, you know, Whitney stumbled onto Bumble's special sauce and she said she always wanted to have a scenario where the guy didn't have to have my number but I had his. And she thought, well, what if women make the first move and send the message? And if they don't, the match disappears after 24 hours, kind of like in Cinderella with the pumpkin and the carriage. It'd be symbolic of a Sadie Hawkins dance where girls ask the guys to the dance. But what if she could hardwire that into a product? And, and that's really what she set out to do with Bumble. And the results sort of speak for themselves. It was immediately a hit. And I think many people who were in the online dating scene saw this as a interesting alternative to the Tinders and whatever else that there is out there and moved over to Bumble. Yeah, it's a great, a great example of innovation. And I also wonder, you know, like I said earlier, I, I never used Bumble or Tinder, but I wonder, you know, a lot of times for guys, it's it's nice to like have that reach out from, from the female first too. So I, I'm wondering if, you know, a lot of guys enjoyed that aspect of the app as well. Um, I think, you know, on the surface, it might be something that was more geared toward, toward, uh, females, but I, I think clearly with the success of the app, you know, both parties enjoyed it. Right. But, and it's, it's clear, you know, if we think about it, you, we can always say hindsight's 2020, but you know, we do know this, that, you know, by empowering women, obviously she's going to gain favor with that audience. And we also know that where the women go, the men will follow, especially when it comes to dating. You know, if you've ever been to a popular club or a bar, of course, they always admit women because they know that when you have the women there, the men will follow. And I think that's something that we saw with Bumble. <laughs> yeah. You always hear about bands who, who talk about appealing to, to women, to girl fans first, because they knew the guys would follow. And as she went forward, one of the other things that I love about the way she approached business is that she's willing to admit mistakes. And as she says, when we launched Bumble, we made what you might call a mistake. Obviously, she was willing to admit that. And the mistake was that women had 24 hours to send the initial message after a match, but men could take as long as they wanted to respond. And she soon kind of realized that this was an imbalance and moved to correct it because and the error was really instructive, right? Something unexpected happened when they told guys how to behave. They did, right? <laughs> People like rules, as she said. This is one of the dirty little secrets of human behavior. An enormous amount of anxiety in the dating world derives from not really knowing what the exact rules are. Should you text her after a day or two or is it a couple of hours? Well, 
by instituting these rules right up front with the 24 hours, there was no choice to be made. And there was no nothing to be inferred by, oh, how long, how many days has it been? How long has it been? What does he think of me? What does she think of me? Right? They they made the first few messages of conversation very easy by implementing rules around it. And as such, more conversations flowed. Yeah, that's very insightful. I mean, like you said, having the rules of engagement set early on, it, it just, you know, really frees up the the two parties to to interact if they want. And that's very smart. Like you said, you always hear about the three-day rule or maybe it's the two-day rule and there's a lot of anxiety and all that. And the rules are always shifting. So by having them set in stone, I think there's probably a lot of serious relationships and probably even marriages right now that have come from that, that those rules, which is kind of cool to think about. Yes, definitely. In fact, it's funny that you say that. I have a friend that, I don't know if this company is still there, but I have a friend that started a company called The Three-Day Rule and they were a matchmaking company and they were just, you know, using that sort of phrase as a as a tease. It is funny in the dating world how men and women have different views on okay, what's the right amount of time to wait, what's too eager, what's not eager enough, but if you just hardwire some rules in there, it makes everything so much easier and you you have a lot less anxiety around that communication. So, moving kind of outside of the app, one thing that she does very differently than uh, than a lot of companies is she really favors a free-flowing sort of office-less environment. And we're starting to see that more with companies like Facebook, where everybody, including Mark Zuckerberg himself, has no office. They they sit at a, at a large sort of open area. And now Bumble is, it started out as a small space, but it's now overflowing with, you know, more than 50 employees and there are only about 25 desks. So not there's not even a desk for every employee. And the reason is, is that people enjoy rotating through conference rooms, through couches, counters, coffee tables, floors, etc. And by doing this, Whitney says, I believe in taking away, taking people away from their desks and making them feel more collaborative. And I believe that we can inspire one another instead of being sort of siloed. And she really wanted her office to feel welcoming, warm, friendly, so that people felt like they could communicate that they're in a friend's home and that they're hanging out. But while they're doing that, they're bouncing ideas off of each other. And really that's how a lot of the ideas in Bumble get formed, which is through this sort of free flowing, casual conversation that she's really, really sought to inspire in, in this sort of office-less environment. Yeah. You know, Arun, the, you know, the Zoho executives really preach this a lot as well, you know, really interacting with other teams, just having those open open flow of communication between, you know, maybe somebody you would never work with in any other project, but getting their opinion on things, getting their input. Um, You know, we work with people across the country. We work with teams in India and just having that, um, that open communication and that ability to, to kind of float around is very um, important to our success and and Bumble's as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of the office environment, this one's a different one and it's definitely very different than Zoho, which is that, at Bumble, there's no engineers in the office, but this is for a very unique reason. So as I kind of alluded to before, all of the engineering is still handled in Badu's London offices. And there's many different reasons that she did this. And as she says, had I gone out and tried to do this on my own with no tech support, Bumble would be at least a year and a half behind. Think of all the marriages and babies and connections we've made in that time. She continued, it's like building a road. If you can get materials from someone quicker that will make people's lives easier, why would you say, no, I want to build this with my own two hands just to be able to say that you did? But Whitney actually attributes much of Bumble's success 
by working in an environment devoid of a dev team. Specifically, she explained that it gave her and her team the creative freedom to allow Bumble's message and brand to drive the product and not vice versa. So by letting the brand take the front seat instead of the product, Bumble leapfrogged the connections app phase and became really a lifestyle brand. That's really, yeah, that's, there's a lot there. And um, it's a very interesting way to look at it. I, and I think my first thought is that that's good leadership on her part to know what you're good at and to find other people to do what they're good at and, you know, not, not seizing control of every aspect just to do it, but to be like, you know what, I want to be in charge of the brand and in this part, I'm going to do it here. I'm going to leave the the development and the coding and what have you to someone else who's got the tools already. And I'm not going to try to control that. Right. And she, it's really knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses and knowing your resources, right. And, and really leveraging each of those in the right way. And, and she really did a, a genius job of doing that. Yeah. And when you mentioned them being a, you know, a brand as opposed to a product, that's something you aspire to. I think any company aspires to, and it reminds me of another company here in Austin, uh, Yeti. We did an episode on them and um, they kind of have the same, the same uh, experience and, you know, the same results as Bumble. Yeti is not just a cooler or a tumbler. Uh, it's a, it's a brand and a lifestyle. And so I think, you know, Bumble is taking cues there and, and really doing the same. Yeah. And lastly, you know, one of the things that Bumble did, which, you know, I don't know if it necessarily has resulted in the growth of the company, but it's really reflective of the founder and and Whitney inserting her personality into the brand, which is they are not afraid to insert themselves into controversy. And under Whitney, Bumble has been very vocal about making sure that they're using their voice to address issues that other companies are taught to sort of avoid taking a stance on. And one example of this is in the wake of the Stoneman Douglas school shooting, Bumble did something that pretty much breaks every PR rule that you're taught in marketing 101. And they decided very publicly to insert themselves right in the middle of our nation's ongoing gun debate by banning images of guns on their platform, taking a hard stance against normalizing violence on their platform. And, you know, whether you agree with it or not, it is definitely uh, interesting. We And we see this a lot with different companies, with Zoho and, and Sridhar really posting a lot of videos about his thoughts on ways, the ways that companies should be run or our responsibility to citizens as, as business owners and business participants. Is, is com- company founders inserting their personality into the company and really giving it an identity? And I think that's interesting. And I think it is ultimately contributive to a company's growth. Yeah. You know, I think we're just in a time when the, the customer demands that, you know, companies just aren't on the sidelines and they're not non-active participants in our lives. We engage with them in their products every day. And the game is over for just sticking out of, you know, interjecting your opinions and your sort of personality um, into the company itself. And, you know, I'm not saying that they always have to be controversial opinions. I think it's just having some, some personality behind the, the company through, through the executives, through the founder is, you know, it's endearing and it, it really, it gives you those lifelong customers and those lifelong fans. I'm right. And so, you know, as we leave you today, I really want to challenge you if you're an executive or an entrepreneur to really don't be afraid to, to buck some of these stereotypes, whether it's injecting your personality into your brand or, doing something different with the way that your app or your product works, you know, which is what she did immediately with reversing the communication flow and adding these rules in there that actually, that actually made the communication much, much easier. And 
yeah, don't be afraid to really go against what maybe other competitors in your field are already doing and do the complete opposite because you never know. They might just build you into a $13 billion company. Business Unusual is brought to you by Zoho, an enterprise platform that adapts to your company. From sales, marketing, and customer support to finance, human resources, and a low-code developer platform, Zoho software solutions address virtually every area of business. Go to zoho.com slash enterprise today and discover a refreshingly different way of doing business.